We turn in God's Word this morning to the third chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be reading all of chapter 3, but our message this morning is based upon the first six verses of this chapter with, Lord willing, covering the rest of the chapter this evening. As we look at the supremacy of Christ, we've seen it as uh, the one who is supreme in terms of uh, the angels, the one who is supreme in terms of the prophets, the one who is supreme in terms of salvation as he functions as our prophet, priest, and king. This morning it's that Jesus is actually supreme over Moses, so you We have to understand in this letter to the Hebrews, a letter specifically written, uh, first of all, for the Jewish people, that we are reminded that for them, uh, the greatest individual, as far as uh, the leader of Israel, would have been Moses. And yet, uh, the author's point is that Christ is superior there as well. But it comes as a good reminder to us as well that uh, Moses, who is indeed the great lawgiver, that uh, Christ is superior over that law. He is superior beyond that law. And that is a good reminder to us as well. Grace does indeed triumph. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word, especially as we read about the supremacy of Christ, that you would give us hearts that understand this and believe this with all of our being, we pray. We ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he explains this to us through the preaching of the word and ask your blessing on us and pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. One of the things we're going to find with uh, the author of Hebrews is that one of his favorite terms is the word therefore. After he has made a point, he comes back and he'll say, therefore, as a result of what I have just said, as a result of what I have just taught, as a result of what I have just written, therefore, And so we begin chapter 3 with one of those, therefore. Based upon what? Therefore, based upon the fact that Jesus is our supreme Savior. And that he is supreme in terms of our salvation. Supreme because he is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. Because of that, because salvation is, comes to us in and through Jesus Christ and him alone, therefore, consider. So we want to look at three things that we are called to in this, these opening six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. First of all, there is that call to consider. Secondly, there is a call to compare. And thirdly, there is a call to confidence, a call to consider a call to compare, and a call to confidence. But first of all, who is it that is to consider? Let's look again at at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. But who is it? Who is it that the author is saying ought to stop for a moment, ought to reflect, ought to think about Jesus? Well, he describes this group in two ways. He says, those who are the holy brothers. See, this is not addressed to the world. This is not to the the world. This is not to the unbeliever that's out there in the world that this word is addressed. This word is addressed to believers, to the holy brothers. This is addressed to those who are within the church. That here too, we stop, we pause, that we consider Jesus. That we not be neglectful of him, that we not pass him by. But that we, we who are the holy brothers... Now the question is, well, how are we made holy? 
Why why is, is that the term? Holy means to be sanctified. This is what he has told us back in chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, Jesus Christ. So we are the holy brothers, you see, not because of our race, not because of our nationality, not because of our country, and as it would have originally come to those who receive this, not to those who are Jews. That's not what makes you holy. You're not holy because of your Jewishness. You're not holy for any other reason other than the one who makes you holy, who sanctifies you, who is Jesus Christ. So we, who are the ones who are sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, are those who are called to consider Jesus. But he he designates us in a second way, doesn't he? Verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, how else? You who share in a heavenly calling. There is a heavenly calling. Now understand what, what the author is saying to us here then is that this privilege of being sanctified, this privilege of having salvation before us in the terms of glory that awaits us is only because you and I have been called. We don't call ourselves. We don't do this work ourselves. We don't perform it ourselves. God calls us. What a beautiful reminder this morning, right, as we come to the table. What are we to do as we come to that table? We are to consider Jesus. Why? Because we come to the table, because we are not sanctified by that which we do, but we're able to approach this table and come to this table because we have been made holy through the work of Jesus Christ. We have been called by our Heavenly Father. We have been called by the Lord to come to his table. We have been invited by our Lord to approach this table. It's not that we thought of this. Who'd think of this? Who'd who'd think of, of coming up with this idea? Right? Of of taking a piece of bread, of taking a, a cup, and having that in some way be a reminder to us of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of his suffering, of his death, of our participation, of our cleansing. We didn't come up with this idea. Peter doesn't invent this. John doesn't invent this. Paul doesn't invent this. This is a heavenly calling. Just as much as our salvation is a heavenly calling. It is God who calls us. So we who are called, we who are the elect, we who have been sanctified through the work of Christ, we who have been washed in his blood, we are to consider Jesus. 
Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So secondly, under this first point, who are we to consider? Well, first of all, we're to consider Jesus. Now, it's interesting, he uses the name Jesus, right? He doesn't say consider Christ. He said consider Jesus. Now, why Jesus? Why, why that name? Matthew chapter 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. See, Christ refers to his anointing. Christ refers to the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Jesus is the term that reminds us that was given to him by the Father to remind us of his work of salvation. So consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Reflect on Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Have your mind dwell upon Jesus. Have your mind become fixed upon Jesus. Consider Jesus. The one who gave his life for you. The one who died. The one who suffered. The one that he was referring to at the end of chapter 2. Not only as the one who sanctifies, but as the one, verse 18, who has suffered. The one who is able to help. Consider Jesus, who is the apostle. The one who is sent. The one who has been chosen. The one who goes forth with the message of the gospel. It's what we looked at last week, right? From the beginning of chapter 2. That he is the prophet. That God has indeed sent Christ to announce the message of the gospel. He has proclaimed the message. We go back to chapter 1, right? In many ways, in various forms, God has spoken before. But now he has spoken. He has sent the apostle in order to proclaim the message of salvation. Consider Jesus, who is the apostle, and who is, verse 1, the high priest of our confession. The one who does the work of the mediator. Now you see, he chose those, the author did, because he's going to move now into Moses. And what is Moses considered? But he is considered as the mediator. Who is it when we read the law from, uh, math, or from Exodus 20 or from Deuteronomy 5 that we read stood between the people and God? It's Moses. Who is the one who throughout his career is the one who is standing between God and the people? The mediator, Moses. Who is the one who is considered the one who, who received the message from God in the form of the law and brought it to the people? Who is the one who is sent by God to the people to proclaim the message of the law? Moses. Who is the mediator? Moses. But the author is saying, no, you need to consider not Moses. You need to consider Jesus. When you think about your salvation, you never think about your salvation in terms of Moses. What does that mean? The work of the law. 
We, we can never, you see, what, he, what he's saying is that we can never go back from grace to works. We are saved by grace in Christ, by faith alone. Never by that which we do. But you see, the author understands that as we are now 30, perhaps 40 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, that the church, that those Jewish people who were converted to Christ are being drawn back to the law is the means of their salvation. And he's coming and he's saying, listen, listen, consider Jesus. Be reminded of Jesus. Be reminded of the fact that your salvation is through Jesus Christ and him alone. You cannot earn it. Not one of us will appear in glory because we have earned that place. It is only by grace through Christ. Consider Jesus. That's the first thing that these first six verses are are asking us to do. Consider Jesus. Secondly, it's a call to compare. And it's a a call now in which he moves from this to saying, okay, let's consider these two. Let's consider Moses and let's consider Jesus. And we'll do it as well. First of all, considering the faithfulness of Moses. And then secondly, we'll consider the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, what does the author tell us about Moses here? Well, he tells us one that he is faithful. There's no doubt about that. He's not saying Moses was not faithful. But we also know, do we not, that Moses was not perfect. We know that Moses himself is not going to be able to enter the land of Canaan because of his own sin. And we could go back, could we not? We, We could go back to that time in Egypt, his taking of that Egyptian life. His refusal over and over and over again to hear the call of God through that burning bush. All those excuses he offers. His explosion of temper at the rock. is not sinless. Although scripture says he is faithful. He is faithful in his calling. He is faithful in his duty. But even as we pause there, we say, well, yeah, there's quite a contrast then, isn't there? From the sinful man, Moses, to the perfect Savior, Jesus. Which one is deserving of greater glory? What does the author tell us? Jesus. Why? Because he is the sinless, faithful one. Now, notice what the author tells us about Moses. He is faithful, verse 2, in 
all God's house. Just, just if you make a, a habit of, of underlining, underline the word in. He is faithful in God's house. That means he is part of the house. He is included in the house. He is faithful in the house. What is the author speaking to us about? He's, he's speaking to us about those 40 years of Moses' leadership over God's people. Those 40 years when he leads the people in that wilderness journey. Those 40 years in which he not only receives and brings the law, in which the tabernacle is, is given its design and it's built, it's constructed, the sacrifices are enacted and put in place, the festivals are all put in place. Moses is faithful in leading those people on that 40-year journey. He is faithful in God's house. But he's faithful, right, only as a human. Because not only is he not able to enter Canaan because of his sin, but he also dies. But in his work, as the leader of God's people, the author of Hebrews is saying, he was faithful in his duties, in his responsibilities. He was faithful, the author says, as a servant. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, as one who is underneath authority, as the one who was given commands and responsibilities by someone who was his superior. And as a servant, he carried out his work faithfully. He did his duty. He fulfilled his responsibilities, but he did so as the one who was under authority. So Moses is faithful in God's house. He is faithful as a servant. And he was faithful in the fact, verse 5, that he testified to things that were to be spoken later. In other words, as Moses received revelation from God, Moses was faithful in passing that revelation on. Moses doesn't change. Moses doesn't distort the word that he receives. He is given the law. He dispenses the law. He is given commands about sacrifices. He dispenses it. Did you ever notice when you read through like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on, there's a whole lot of repetition. You get, and God said, and God spoke, and we get something about, for example, the Passover. A few chapters later, here's Moses. And Moses said to the people, what? Well, what you read is exactly what you read before. And you might be going, why do we have to read all of this again? We already heard this. The purpose is to show us Moses' faithfulness in taking that which God spoke and then bringing that. He doesn't change it. Right? When God says, hey, you're, you're to celebrate, for example, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what you're to do. It's not like Moses says, well, you know, I know that's the law, but I'm just going to change it for my own purposes. Now, some of you are thinking election, aren't you? Some of you are thinking there's elections and then there's people who just 
willy-nilly change things. Ah, a couple of days before, yeah, we'll extend this. Yeah, we'll do this. Nah, that's not required anymore. And do you notice the problem that results? Do you notice the unrest that results because of that? Right? What does Moses do? Moses does not change that which he is given by the Lord. He carries it out. He brings it to the people faithfully. The author is saying Moses was faithful in that duty. Well, if Moses was faithful in all of this, why is it that Jesus then is to be considered having greater glory? Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? If Moses is faithful in all that he had done, why is Jesus worthy of greater glory? Let's go back through it. How is Jesus faithful? Well, one of the things it's interesting is that the tense of the verb that is used to describe the faithfulness of Jesus is a verb that means on and on and on, that it continues, that it doesn't end. In other words, Moses served for a time. Moses served for a period. He was faithful in that, but it came to an end. Right? It comes to, a, as it were, a screeching halt on top of Mount Nebo. He has been faithful in his work, but the work ends. But the faithfulness of Jesus doesn't end. It continues on and on and on. It is an eternal faithfulness with, with no end date. Jesus is always going to be our Savior. He is always going to be our prophet, priest, and king. Always. Even when we die and go to glory, Jesus is still our Savior. He is still our faithful high priest. He is still the apostle. And it'll never cease. Jesus, you see, is worthy of greater glory because his faithfulness surpasses the faithfulness of Moses because it's not limited by time. Secondly, note, he is over God's house. Right? Verse 6. Remember I told you to underline the in? Look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Now you'll also notice a distinction, right? Now he refers to Jesus as Christ. Why? Because that reminds us of his eternal being. Right? Jesus, this is it's going to take some brain power here to, to work through. Jesus is formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And he takes on flesh. He becomes man. Jesus' existence prior to that event 
is his existence as the divine Christ. As the divine Christ, he did not always have a human nature. That is what we celebrate in his coming and being born as the babe of Bethlehem. The divine Christ, the eternal Christ, takes on human flesh. So the eternal son of God takes on human flesh that he never discards. But for all of eternity, he continues with his human and divine nature. So that in glory, even now, we have not just the divine Christ there. We have our human nature in Christ there. Paul makes great deal of that in 1 Corinthians 15, right? In the resurrection of Christ and that he is there in his flesh. Why is he superior to Moses? Think about that. Did Moses have an eternal existence before he was born there as a slave boy in Egypt? No. Does Moses now have an eternal existence in heaven in his human nature? No. He's buried somewhere on Mount Nebo. He exists in glory in his soul, but not in his body. Christ, however, is worthy of greater honor. Because he is also not in God's house. He is over it. He is not a part of it. He is the creator of it. He is the maker of it. He is the former of it. And, and I was thinking, I mean, we have a number of builders in our congregation. But what an interesting beginning to this, right? Right? You see a house. You see a house under construction. And you go, wow, isn't that a beautiful home? But what the author of Hebrews says is, but you know, when we really pause to consider it, it's, not, it's the home that calls our attention, but it is the builder who is worthy of a greater honor. Think of the ability, think of the talent. Think of the, the work that has gone into it. Is not the builder, is not the architect of this worthy of greater honor than just the house? Do we praise the house and say, oh house, what a wonderful house. You have constructed yourself. You have poured cement. You have put up trusses. You, you have done all of this. Oh, you've hung drywall house. What an amazing house you are. Now, we may look at the house, we may ponder it, but we know that the builder is of far greater honor. Moses was in God's house. Christ is the architect. He is the builder. Therefore, he is worthy of greater honor. And he does so, not as a servant, note, but as the son. Verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, as the heir. And remember what that means back from chapter 1. It means that as the son, he is the exact imprint of God. 
understand that he is the radiance of God's glory. There is certainly a much greater distinction than isn't there between Jesus and Moses. Moses' face shone but for a period of time. Christ's glory, Jesus' glory is eternal. Which one then is superior? But remember also what the author had said in terms of the testifying. Moses was the one who testified. He was the one who faithfully communicated that which God had spoken. But what about Jesus? He's the fulfiller. He's the one who actually accomplished it. Moses brought the law of God. What does Jesus say? I have come not to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. All those sacrifices. What does Jesus say? I come to give my life as a ransom for many. All those festivals. What does Jesus come and say? I am the light of the world. See, Jesus is the fulfiller. Moses took a message, communicated it faithfully to the people. Christ comes and he fulfills that which Moses testified. The author of Hebrews is saying, therefore Jesus is worthy of greater honor. Let us consider Jesus. Let's not think that the law is such a big deal. That the law somehow is our means of salvation, is the means by which we accomplish things. That our obedience earns us points with God. We are all sinners, saved by grace. But thirdly, there is a call here to confidence. That's the last phrase of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house. See, the word house here is not meant to mean a physical dwelling. It's not meant to be a physical structure like the home you live in or that which a builder builds or our addition or this structure. The word house here is meant spiritually. Moses was faithful in God's spiritual house. Jesus is over God's spiritual house. Listen to how this phrase is used in various passages. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do, you not, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, he's not talking a physical structure. He's talking his presence. 
or 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are His house. Why are we His house? Because we have been made holy through the cleansing of His blood by the work of the Holy Spirit. We have been sanctified. We are His house. Jesus Christ is over the house of God. Having fulfilled all of the promises, having given Himself as a ransom for many, having poured out His blood, so that he might have for himself a house. And he then deserves the greater glory than Moses. We are his house. If we hold fast. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast. Remember where we were last week? That, that term drift away. Right? That, that we, 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 we remember Christ as our prophet. What? So that we remember the word of Christ. We remember the word of God. And that we do not drift away from it. Remember those examples. Right? Drifting out of that, that river at Ludington, out into Lake Michigan and into the fog. Or the multitude of other ways that, that we see that happening. But also the spiritual way in which we drift. Now notice what the author says. We are God's house if we drift away. No. We are not God's house if we drift away. If we no longer have and place our full confidence in Jesus Christ. So he's coming to, to these people, these Hebrews, these Jewish people who are Christians, who are believers. But, but they're, they're contemplating perhaps, well maybe we need some of the law. Maybe we need the law and maybe by our own works we shall attain glory. Yeah, we'll start with Christ. And my friends, this is the way it is with the church, right? There, there is always this coming to Christ. Oh yes, we understand grace and mercy. But somehow the devil always gets us to somehow loosen our grip upon Christ. And those who drift away, those who say, well, you know, Christ might have been good for a period of time. But unless you can speak in tongues, you're not saved. You've drifted away from Christ. Or those who would say, yeah, Christ's pretty important, but boy, I, I got to go through all those sacraments. If I don't go through all those sacraments, if I'm not doing those things, oh, if somebody doesn't say a mass over me after I'm dead, I, I'm probably not going to make it. We drift away from Christ. 
Well, it's not so important that we really understand Christ as it's in the Word. I think maybe Jesus was just kind of a glorious angel who took on for a period of time some human nature. But he's not really God. Drifting away. Oh, but how quick, how quick we can do this as well. Oh, I'm saved. Why? Because I go to church twice a Sunday. I'm saved because I know the hymns of the church. I'm saved because I still read a King James Version. I'm saved because, look, we showed up today in spite of COVID. I'm saved because of what I have done. Now, if we drift away, means we never really were anchored in Christ. When we leave Christ behind and when we grab on to the works of the flesh, when we grab on to that which we think we do, if we think we're saved because we take that little piece of bread and that little cup, this saves me. And we've drifted away. The plea here of the author to the Hebrews, to you and I, to the church. Don't drift away. Hold fast to Christ as your only hope, as your only confidence, as your only means of salvation. We hold fast our confidence and our boasting. You're going to do that in a few minutes. What do we say when we take this cup and we take this piece of bread, but that we proclaim what? Do we proclaim our goodness? Do we proclaim our righteousness? No. We proclaim Christ. We boast of Christ. So in a few moments, when you take that bread, proclaim, proclaim Christ. When you take that cup, proclaim Christ as your only hope, as your only confidence, as the one of greater glory. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed a powerful word to us. It's a timely word to us. It is a word, Father, we need to hear over and over and over again because we know, we know, Father, how tempted we are to let go. We know, Father, that we are indeed prone to wander. Here's our heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for our courts above. And may our boast, may our boast, may our song be of Christ and Christ alone. In his name, God's people say, amen.